Hi, I'm Erwin McManus, and this is the Mosaic Podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And if you're one of our regular listeners, we love the fact that you journey with us. And we pray that every single message inspires you and helps you become the person that God created you to be. Every single week, we send a new message across the world. And everything we do here at Mosaic is made available to everyone in the world for absolutely free. The reason we can do that is that we have incredible people who give generously and sacrificially to make this possible. And I want to invite you to join us. If you're already a giver, thank you so much. If this is something you've not yet done, I want to invite you to start doing that now. Go to mosaic.org slash give and give a one-time gift or even beyond that, become a recurring giver here at Mosaic. And if you're one of those individuals who God has blessed in an amazing way financially, I want to invite you to become one of our partners here at Mosaic. What's really beautiful about Mosaic is that our biggest givers are families who do not live here in Los Angeles, but they are so committed to the message of Jesus going to the world that they support the work here from Los Angeles to the ends of the earth. And so I want to invite you again, go to mosaic.org slash give, become a part of our support system, become one of our partners. And more than anything else, I want you to listen to the message, allow Jesus to speak to you in a way that will change your life. So we're beginning a new series today, and the series is, by no coincidence, connected to my new book, Mindshift. It doesn't take a genius to think like one. And over the next several weeks, we're not going to unwrap everything in this book. But we are going to highlight certain principles that if you will apply to your life, will, will alter the direction, the trajectory of your life. And I absolutely guarantee you that if you apply these principles to your life, it will elevate who you are in the life that you live. But one of the most difficult things to do sometimes is to convince people that the beginning is the beginning. That there's a place where you have to start to get to the end game, to the finish line that you so desperately want to get to. And sometimes what happens when you're a person of faith is that you think coming to faith allows you to skip huge steps in the process of becoming the full human being you're supposed to become. I wrote MindShift because I have had the incredible gift of getting to know so many of you over the years, to interact with thousands upon thousands of people who are incredibly talented, surprisingly intelligent, gifted, passionate, intense, and time and time again meeting those people and finding that they hit walls and obstacles and ceilings. And I experienced so many people feeling the intense frustration that even though they have faith and even though they believe in God and even though they've entrusted their lives to Jesus, they have the same obstacles and barriers and ceilings that people who do not believe in God. And in fact, the reality is that, that most of us think that when we come to faith, it's going to shift everything. That if we would just believe in Jesus... Now our lives are going to play out differently. And have you discovered that even after you come to believe in God, even after you trust Jesus with your life, that you're still sort of stuck with the same you? That it's the same you that you knew just before you believed and you thought there'd be this 
radical external shift, but now you're having to do the hard work of becoming the person that you long to become. And one of the things that I think is so challenging is that we have really struggled trying to figure out how do you bring faith into real life? And that's what I wanted to talk about, and that's what this book is really about. It's about destroying internal limitations. It's about realizing that your life doesn't change until your mind changes. That if you want to change your life, you need to change your mind because there's, there's an extraordinary work that has to happen in your inner world that if it doesn't happen, you will remain the same. I, I remember the moment when I began forming the, the concept for this book. Something happened on February 10th, 1990 in Tokyo. There was a historic sporting event in the boxing world where a man named Buster Douglas entered the ring against a man named Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson was the most violent, devastating, terrifying boxer that ever entered the ring in our lifetime. And Buster Douglas was also there. <laughs> Buster Douglas was a 42 to one underdog. Buster Douglas was not supposed to survive even the first or second round. Mike Tyson wasn't a boxer, he was a fighter. Well, no, Mike Tyson wasn't a fighter, he was a killer. Mike Tyson had so much anger and violence and vengeance trapped inside of him and boxing gave him a legal way of destroying humans. <laughs> boxing wasn't a sport. It was an opportunity to take all the rage that was inside of him and get paid for using it to make him the best in the world. And Buster Douglas enters the ring and, and he does what was unthinkable. He survives the first round. In fact, he survives the second and third round. He's still standing in the fourth and fifth round. And the sixth and seventh round, Buster Douglas doesn't know he's not supposed to be in the ring against Mike Tyson. And in the 10th round, the unthinkable happens. One of the two boxers hits the canvas and is knocked out, but it is not Buster Douglas. It is Mike Tyson. This unknown, this underdog, brings three world championship belts and becomes the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Buster Douglas, who had lost multiple fights before in his life and had no expectation of having any level of success. And then 10 months go by and he finally gets a chance to defend his title. And he's at the Mirage in Paradise, Nevada. And he's now fighting a boxer named Evander Holyfield. And, and everyone wanted to see how Buster Douglas would respond. He's been the champion now for 10 months. It's great being a champion when you don't have to defend it. And he enters that ring, but, but it was sort of surprising because on that day, Buster Douglas showed up out of shape, overweight, unprepared. And there's even an apocryphal story that he was in a McDonald's in a mall before the fight. <laughs> Believe me, he looked like he had a lot of McDonald's experiences when he entered that ring. And so when he entered that ring and the bell rang, he was awkward uncomfortable, disoriented, embarrassed himself, and was knocked out in the third round. 
And then on October 26th, the next day, I'm driving through Dallas, Texas. I'm turning on the sports radio. I'm a huge boxing fan. And I'm listening to the analysis on the fight. And one of the analysts said, why do you think Buster Douglas didn't even try? I mean, you could understand him losing, but, but why do you think he clearly didn't even try? And the other analyst said something that really bothered me. He said, you know, Buster Douglas is known to be a really good guy, a deeply religious man. He's even a Christian. Oh, why does he have to be a Christian? Why couldn't he be something else? Because then if he was something else, we could say what would solve the problem would be Jesus. But he had Jesus and the problem. And then the third analyst said something that shook me. The third analyst seemed to have thought this through at a deeply human level, and he said, some people are simply structured for failure. And when he said that, the conversation was no longer about Buster Douglas, now it was about me. Because I, it was as if the moment I heard those words, there was a, an examination of the entire universe inside of me, and there were all these internal structures for failure that were clearly inside of me. But that wasn't my whole story. It wasn't so clear-cut. It wasn't black and white. Because I, I could find internal structures for success as well. And some people might have called me successful on some days. There were days I, I felt successful, days I felt as if I had internal structures for success. But, but I also knew that, that there was this self-destructive mechanism inside of me where whenever I began to succeed, it was almost as if I were my own worst enemy. And so I could see that there were internal structures for failure inside of me. And what made it worse was I don't remember putting them there. I don't remember waking up saying, I'm going to structure myself for failure. I just think that'd be really fascinating, really exciting. Let's just do that. Why, why structure my life for success? That would be too easy. In fact, every internal structure I had for success, I could remember choosing it. But every internal structure for failure, it seemed like it chose me. And it began for me a lifetime of deep and intense study of the psychological universe inside of us. Why are we structured for failure? Why do we choose internal structures for failure? And how do we shift? Because the moment I heard that line, some people are simply structured for failure. I immediately thought to myself, well, if that's true, then you can also be structured for success. And as I looked at Buster Douglas's life, something became so clear to me that Buster Douglas did not crumble under the weight of failure, which is what I had assumed. Because I think most of us are terrified of failure. Most of us think that, that, that failure is what's going to crush us. Failure is what's going to hold us down. Failure is what's going to devastate us. But, but I think it's actually something quite different. See, Buster Douglas fought five fights, then lost. I think fought 10 fights, lost. 20 fights, then lost. He had lost four or five times before he ever faced Mike Tyson. Buster Douglas had the internal structures to overcome failure. In fact, he had overcome failure multiple times and entered the ring against Tyson and then won. So he clearly had the internal structures that could handle the weight of failure. But what he did not have were the internal structures that could carry and handle the weight of success. And I actually think there are more, more of us that struggle with the weight of success and failure. I think when we fail, it just reinforces our own negative view of ourselves. When we fail, by the way, other people like you more. 
When you fail, you don't really have any enemies. It's when you succeed that you suddenly find yourself in the pressure cooker. When you succeed, you suddenly find yourself alienated from the people who liked you five minutes earlier. If you succeed too much, you'll find yourself alone. And if you continue to elevate, the pressure of the life you live will be so intense that you may crumble right under it. Are our mental structures essential to our spiritual vitality? We try to act as if they're separate. We have our spiritual life, then we have our brain. You can have faith, or you can have reason, but you cannot have them both. There was a man in the scriptures, in the history of Israel, that was identified as the wisest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon. And Solomon wrote this small description of the human essence. In Proverbs 23, verse 7, he says this, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, this is not gender-specific. This is mankind. So let's make sure we're clear on that. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And as a woman thinks in her heart, so is she. As a person thinks in their heart, so are they. What Solomon is actually telling us is that there's a direct relationship between who we are and how we think or what we think. Have you ever wondered how you got here? Not here, geographically, but here in terms of who you are as a person, the life that you live, the person you've become. Have you ever had that small little voice telling you, I didn't think it would be like this? Have you ever surprised yourself thinking, I, I thought I would be different than this? I thought my life would be different than this. How did I get here? Solomon is actually giving us the roadmap. He's telling us how we became who we are. He's actually telling us how we created the life that we're in right now. And sometimes it feels like life is happening to us, not through us. And what Solomon is telling us is that you can know who you are by what you think. And by the way, you can know who you are becoming by what you think. Where does your brain go? Where does your mind go? Where do your thoughts go? What, what universe has your thought life created because that's the person you're becoming? And I think one of the interesting tensions right now in, in the cultural conversation is that so oftentimes people of faith do not understand the significance of the power of the mind. And so it takes people outside of faith to actually talk about it. And so we hear people outside of faith talking about how you need to manifest your future. And we go, oh, no, no, that doesn't sound right, but it kind of sounds right. right. You need to speak it into reality. No, that sounds, that sounds wrong, but it kind of sounds right. And, and even the Harvard studies, you need to fake it till you make it. Of course, the problem is while you're faking it, you're a fake, but but you need to fake it till you make it. Isn't it essentially saying the same thing, that somehow something has to shift inside of you if you're going to create something different? And one of my frustrations is that so many of us who are people of faith just leave our minds on the off button. And we don't actually see the connection between changing our 
minds and changing our lives. But I want you to know the process that God chose to transform your life and to transform my life actually is an inside-out process and your life will never change if your mind doesn't change. Because as a person thinks, so are they. Now, in, in, my, in my little notes here, I have in his heart or in their heart in a parenthesis because that word heart isn't really what the Hebrew says. There are certain words in the Hebrew that cannot be translated in the English. And a part of the reason is that we, we, we're a very verbose culture. We have a lot of words for everything, more words than needed. We have words that mean opposite things, just the same word because we just like to. But the Hebrews have basically under 10,000 words. They're very economical with their words, so every word has to have power. And the word used here by Solomon is a word that means more than heart and means more than soul and means more than mind. Because there isn't a word that can describe what he's actually saying. As, as a person thinks in their universe, uh, one translation could be in their breath of life. I think a better way of describing this in your life force. So let me use inadequate language to describe what's going on inside of you when you're going through the process of transformation, when you're making a mind shift. The core of you is what I would call your spirit, if you just let me describe it that way. See, what, what the scriptures would tell you is that you are a spiritual being in a material reality, not a material being with a spiritual experience. You are at your core spirit, and what the scriptures tell us is that outside of a relationship with God, our spirit is dead. Even though we experience life, our spirit is dead. But the moment we enter into a relationship with God, the moment we invite Jesus into our life, we become alive, and, and a metamorphosis happens. The, the scriptures actually tell us that you actually go through a metamorphosis when you come into a relationship with God, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly or a tadpole becoming a bullfrog. Not as attractive, but still as significant. <laughs> and when you go through that metamorphosis, you cannot go back. A bullfrog can never go back to be a tadpole. A butterfly, as terrified as they may be of flying, can never go back and become a caterpillar. And once you're alive, you're alive for all of eternity. But the difficulty is that your inner world is a universe, and so now your life force is alive. And so you, at the very core of your being, are already who you're going to become. You, you are already a perfect reflection of the image and likeness of God. You don't have to work toward becoming that you have to work toward allowing that to become you. It's already inside of you. And so in a sense, you are moving toward where you already are. You are fighting for who you have already become. But the problem is that that life source, who you are, is trapped. The matrix is real, but it's not out there. It's in here. And that spirit, who you are, is in this space that we would call the soul. Now, while your spirit is a perfect reflection of God's intention of you, your soul's a mess. You know your soul, your emotions, those emotions that go up and down, those emotions that say Tuesday is great and Wednesday is terrible, those emotions you date and you're not sure who they are because they're two different people in two different minutes, 
Your soul, the one that gets depressed. Your soul, the one that feels anxiety. Your soul, the one that's stressed out. Your soul that's struggling with anxiety. Your soul. That same soul where you're filled with joy and that same soul where you love and that same soul where you have hope and that same soul where you're depressed and have hope at the same time. You're full of love and hate at the same time. That soul, it feels as if it's a, it's a chaotic universe still being formed. And in that soul that is you, you have your mind. And your mind is the architecture of your soul. Your mind, in a sense, is the matrix. Your mind is that place that tells you how you interact with reality. And so that mind of yours is shaped by the health or unhealth of your soul. And so if your soul is unhealthy and it's filled with anger and bitterness and, and fear and doubt, it shapes the internal construct of your mind and it tells you everyone's out to get you. No one is good. No one can be trusted. No one will ever love you. The world is dangerous because your mind is being shaped by all the negative forces, all the negative energy in your soul. Or if your soul is healthy and your soul is filled with hope, your soul is filled with love, your soul is filled with forgiveness, your soul is filled with life. It's shaping the mental construct of your mind and it's telling you there's always something good happening in the world. Life is full of possibilities. It is full of opportunities. There, there are people waiting to help you out there. And your mind actually sees what your soul is informing it to see. So you have your spirit, this life force, who is, it is who you are already becoming. And, it's, and then you have your soul and, and this, this essence of who you are, your spirit is trying to inform your soul. It's almost as if the core you is trying to convince you that you're already that person, so just become that person now. But your soul is saying, I'm not that person. Can't you feel what I'm going through? And you are going, yes, I've been through it with you, and we're on the other side going, I don't believe you. And then you tell your mind, we can't solve this. We can't fix this. We'll never get better. We'll never grow. And so all the boundaries, all the limitations, all the ceilings that you are pressed up against are not external, they're internal. The entire intention of mind shift is to destroy internal limitations. And I can tell you that of all the things I do not know how to do, I know how to do this. Because as a person thinks, so are they. Would ever, would God ever choose you because you have the right mental construct? Would God ever put you on hold because your mindset is wrong? Would God ever table you for an opportunity because you haven't made the proper mind shift? Maybe there's something here because have you ever felt like, God, I love you? God, look at me. I'm authentic and I'm genuine and I love you. And God's like trying to have a conversation about, yeah, but your thinking is still bad. You're still not thinking at a higher level. And you go, yeah, yeah, but, but God, I, I, I love you. He goes, yeah, I love you too, but you, you're not thinking at a level where I can use you the way you want to be used. It applies in so many simple ways. Like, 
God, I love you, so I'm going to keep dating the wrong guy. And I know that every guy I date is still the same guy. Because I'm still making the same stupid choices, foolish choices. But since I love you, God, you'll fix this. You don't think like that, do you? Like, or, or another example. I love you, God, and I, I would really love for you to make me rich. Just in case. You're bored and need something to do. God, I would love for you to make me incredibly successful. No one prays like that, right? God, give me the role, not them. God, give me the raise, not them. God, pick me. And if you have a conversation with God, he would say, okay, tell me why. Because I love you. Because I believe in you and they don't. So you should always pick me because I believe in you and they don't. And God might say something like, I can't make you rich because you're really bad with money. You go, yeah, yeah, but that shouldn't have anything to do with it, God, because I love you. And I believe in you, and they don't believe in you, and they don't love you, so how is it possible they're more successful than me? It's because they think better than you. No, but that can't be, that can't be real. It can't be the application. That, that should be neutralized because I have faith. And so you can always be poor because you have a limited mindset. You have a fixed mindset. And you think that God is going to somehow override bad thinking because of sincere faith. I want to show you this interesting spot in the scriptures where God chooses people by giving them a task where their actions, their choices reflect their mindset. It's all the way back in the book of Judges, chapter 7. Gideon is in charge, and he's leading the people of Israel, and there's only a few thousand of them. And they're at war against the Midianites, who have over 135,000. They would describe the Midianites as having so many soldiers that you couldn't count them as much as you could count the grain of sands on the sea. So many camels that you couldn't even count them. And so it says in verse 2 of Judges 7, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. By the way, that's, that's a terrible starting point. Because he didn't have enough men. See, if, if Gideon started the conversation, he would say, God, if you want us to win this war, you need to be aware of the fact that we do not have enough soldiers. They have way more soldiers. You need to resolve the situation. We have a scalability issue here. Our competition has way more than we have. We can't win this. You, you have, God says, no, no, no. You have too many men. Why? I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So it's as if God is saying, right now you have a destructive internal narrative. You think it's your power and your strength. And so pride creates the matrix that limits the power that I've placed inside of you. And I have to destroy that pride to move you to a place of humility. And most of us really don't want God to do that. We want God, God, make us powerful. Just don't make us humble if that's necessary to be powerful. But why would God ever trust power to an arrogant person? So first thing I have to do, I have to destroy this false mental construct that you've saved yourself because of your own strength. And verse 3 goes, Now announce to the army, 
anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So now he's destroying a second negative mental structure. The first is arrogance, pride. He goes, but now I want you to get rid of everyone who's informed by fear. Because if your life is being informed by fear, your mindset will limit your life. In fact, there's nothing more destructive to the internal structure of your mind than fear, pain, and failure. So God says, send everyone who trembles with fear and let them turn back. By the way, that was an easy invitation because when you're afraid and you get an invitation to turn back, you take it. And some of you may not realize that along the way, God may actually be giving you an invitation to choose a lesser life. Because you choose to be informed by fear, so God lets you tap out and say, everyone who's informed by fear, you can go back. And we raise our hands, then we get upset when someone else moves forward, but we're moving backwards. And by the way, just because you choose to move backwards, you should not obligate others to run with you. So it goes, so 22,000 men left. Wow. 22,000 gone in an instant because they were informed by fear while 10,000 remain. 10,000 against 135,000. That's enough, God. And they all went back. No judgment. Just live a lesser life. And maybe that's the way God works. It's hard for me. I, I've been told, Erwin, you're putting way too much pressure on people. Or when you keep calling people to more, you keep calling people to greatness, you keep calling people to a level of genius, you keep calling people to a life of courage. Chill. <laughs> Not in this room. In this room, you will never be comfortable by choosing less. But 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. If I'm Gideon, I'm not happy. You ever feel like God just keeps stripping you away of all your advantages? Like, God, I'm already in a liability position. Nah, you have too much success, too much wealth. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take your job. Oh, thank you, God. I hated that job. Yeah, I'm going to take your career, too. Oh, I didn't want that. You know what? I'm going to take your girlfriend, too, and your boyfriend. I'm going to take them all. I'm going to take your friends. They're gone. I'm going to strip you down to nothing. Is that where you go? Thank you. But is it possible that God is trying to strip you down to the core so that you can actually make it through the maze of limited thinking so you can discover the fullness of who you are. So God says there are still too many men. And then he says this. It's kind of an unusual thing. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. Isn't God good? God is, he just always shows up right when you need it. I will thin them out for you. Like, I got it. You ever have God thin out your life for you? You thought you were really on a roll. You were becoming successful. You were really crushing it. And then everything just collapsed. Like, God, I thought you were on my side. I love you. But yeah, I'm just thinning things out for you. So we can get to the core of who you are. So Gideon took the men down to the water. 
Then the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Do you ever read the Bible and you think, what? Why is this important? Why is this the dividing line, God? Really? I mean, why is he saying, separate those who love me from those who do not love me? Why doesn't he say, separate those who believe in me to those who do not believe in me? Separate those who have faith in me from those who do not have faith in me. That's not the measure. Take them to the water and watch how they drink. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And he did exactly as the Lord instructed him. And out of those 10,000 men, 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like a dog. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. I do not want God to send me home. I wonder how many times I've been sent home because I didn't have the right mental structures, the right mindset. Why this dividing line? It's very simple. 10,000 men, when they came to the water, were thirsty, and all they could think about was their thirst. And so they knelt to the water and they drank from the pool itself. And all they could see was the water and their thirst. Only 300 of them knelt down and grabbed water in their hands, which is incredibly inefficient. And they took that water in their hands and lapped it like a dog because they kept their head up because they knew that their thirst wouldn't minimize the danger around them. But it could make them blind to it. God sent home 10,000 people because they drank water the wrong way. God was using this as a scientific study to be able to see the mindset. And he would rather fight with 300 who have their heads up and paying attention to what needs to be seen than 10,000 who can only see their own need, their own thirst, and forget what's actually happening all around them. Most of us live our lives, especially when we have faith. We live our lives just running to the water and drinking with our heads in the pond. Thinking, oh, God will protect us. I don't have to think about anything else. All I need to do is just, just love God and then just drink. But has it ever occurred to you that there's a reason God gave you a mind? That God gave you this incredible gift, the power to choose. And that choosing actually establishes the mental structures of your mind that either imprisons you or liberates you to live the life he created you to live. 
I mean, think about people like David. I, I, I know how we tell the story. David fights Goliath, right? We all know that story. We all know it's because he had faith. We know it's because he loved God with all of his heart. We know it's because he had courage. We never think about the fact that he was just a better thinker because he had a giant problem. Yeah, and a giant problem. And everyone else had tried to solve that problem the same way. And if David had tried to solve how to conquer a giant the same way, he would have failed like everyone else. That moment where he chose to pick up the five stones, that was an, a moment of innovation, a revolution and thinking. The moment David decided to use a slingshot instead of a sword or a spear was a moment inside of the mind of the person God chose to lead his people. Because it's important to have faith. And it's essential to have courage. And it's critical for sustainable success to have character. But God is also trying to shape the way you think. When Aaron was around 10 years old, I took him to El Salvador. It was amazing because he got to meet his great-grandfather, which a lot of people don't get to do. I was raised by my grandfather, and he taught me how to play chess at about the age of three. Because in El Salvador, there were not a lot of outdoor opportunities due to war and violence. And so my sporting experience was chess. And my grandfather and my son Aaron got to play chess against each other. And I have a photograph of four generations of chess. It's kind of beautiful. But I was watching the game, and at that time, Aaron was actually pretty good because he'd been playing a lot with me. And he had a great position. And my grandfather is very competitive and rarely loses. But I could see if Aaron just made this one move, it would position him for victory. And so I, I, I walked over to the board, and I just said, buddy, uh, the, the night, the night, the other night. <laughs> yeah. And he saw it, and his eyes opened, and he saw in that moment what he had not seen before. They moved that piece, and the game was now going to domino in his direction. And my grandfather erupted with anger. Call me you. How dare you? How shameful of you. All in Spanish, by the way. <laughs> How dare you tell him where to move? You've disgraced the game of chess. You've dishonored the game. I said, Papi, he's 10. <laughs> I just helped him with a move. No! I refuse to play. He walked away because he was going to lose, but <laughs> he walked away saying, I will not play this game, for you have betrayed and dishonored this game. I had flashbacks to when I was three, playing with my grandfather, and four, playing with my grandfather, and five, playing with my grandfather. I went for years without ever winning a game. I went for years without ever moving more than 15 moves. I'd move 10 moves, checkmate. In Spanish, it's more ominous, mate. 
you are dead. I kill you. Over and over again, I kill you. My grandfather, Mate. And then in our family culture, I was obligated, obligated to put my hand on the head or the crown of my king and drop him on the ground. The game was not over until I dropped my king in a clear act of submission and defeat. That was my childhood. <laughs> and I would cry because I was five. <laughs> and I would cry and cry and cry. And I remember saying, Papi, let me have a move. And he would look at me with such intensity and seriousness and say, when you earn a move, you can have a move. And I am so grateful that my grandfather taught me that every choice I make has consequences and benefits. And if I make the wrong choice, it limits my future. And if I make the right choice, it expands my future. And then I come into faith and I hear all of this talk about faith as if we no longer have to think. And one of the most difficult challenges I had in becoming a person of faith is that I felt like faith was a surrender to stupidity. Because I kept listening to our narratives, saying all you need to do is love God. All you need to do is have faith. And then we kept the same level of thinking. If you stay at the same level of thinking, you will stay at the same level of life. If you do not learn how to make better choices, you will not have a better future. Because as a person thinks, so are they. So who do you want to be? Decide who you want to be. No one can choose for you. Decide what the non-negotiable you is. And then make the choices that move you toward that person. But here's the good news. You already are that person. Because in your spirit, you are already made new. You are a new creation. You are a perfect reflection of the person you are fighting to become. Just listen to your soul. And then allow your spirit to shape your inner world. And let God begin to reshape the matrix of your mind and make the mind shifts that set you free. Oh, and by the way, we have one little distinct advantage. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, it says this. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind. Christ. Somewhere in the deep, deep recesses of me, not the me you see, not the me I've experienced, not even the me that I know, the me I don't even know fully, the me that has been transformed by the presence of Jesus, that me is not informed simply by my broken, fragile, distorted mind. 
but by the mind of God. For I have the mind of Christ. I can just choose to ignore that genius or allow it to shape me. And when you come into a relationship to Jesus, you have the mind of Christ. So why are you settling for your old mind and not moving into your new mind? It doesn't take a genius to think like one, but it's a huge advantage when you have a genius dwelling at the core of your being, whispering into your soul, informing you where life can be lived most fully, shaping your character that shapes your choices, that creates your future. Let me tell you, I don't know if I've ever been more excited about a conversation than I am right now in talking about making mind shifts. Because some of you are trapped in the matrix of your own making. I understand. Some of you have gone through such pain and trauma. Some of you are convinced that who you are is because of what you've gone through. It's because of your pain. It's because of your wounds. It's because of the trauma in your life. And those events have such a mark on your soul that you think it's what makes you, but it's not. Nothing coming at you from the outside can ever have the final say of your inside. You have the power to choose. You can overcome your pain. You can't rise above your trauma. You are not trapped in who you are. You're not even trapped in who you are. But the real you may be trapped inside of you waiting to be awakened. And every time you make a mind shift where your mind matches the mind of Christ, you become a reflection of who God created you to become. And his mind will affect every arena of your life. It'll transform your relationships. It will transform your career. It will transform your emotional well-being. It will transform everything about who you are. Because if you want to change your life, change your mind. Because all the change begins in here. In here. In here. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? Just close your eyes just for a moment. You may be here listening, but something deeper is going on. God is having a conversation with you. He's been waiting for you to open up your life to him. He wants to create a metamorphosis in your soul. He wants to change you from the inside out. And through that change, he wants to change your mind and change your life. But it begins by trusting Jesus with your life. It begins by choosing to cross the line of faith and giving your life completely to the one who died for you and rose from the dead. The greatest tragedy of sin is that it steals from you life and convinces you that existence is good enough. But if you're here right now and you're ready to live, you're ready to make that shift. You're ready to invite Jesus into your life. I want you to pray this simple prayer right now. Jesus, 
I give you my life. Right now, just tell him, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. If this is your prayer, I want to pray for you because today will be the beginning of your forever. If you just prayed that prayer, Jesus, I give you my life, I want to pray for you, but I want you to let me know right now just by raising your hand real high. Just hold it up high. No hesitation, no embarrassment. Right now, if you invited Jesus into your life, just raise your hand high. If you just crossed the line of faith, beautiful, all around the room. Beautiful. Anyone else? There's someone else. Yeah, I see you. You barely raise it up, but I see you. Father, I pray for every single person who in this moment has crossed the line of faith and invited you to make them new from the inside out. I pray, God, that right now you would wrap them up in your love and let them know they belong to you. And I pray, God, they would know that you have heard their prayer, that you've placed your life in them, and that they are alive. I thank you, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Put your hands down just for a moment. There's some of you here, and you already believe in God. You already gave your life to Jesus, but your life is a mess. Your mind is a disaster. And you need a mind shift. And if you're here today, you're saying, man, my brain is a matrix. My mind is a matrix, and I cannot figure out how to live life fully. I'm just struggling with depression and anxiety and stress. I have all these negative voices inside of me. I need a mind shift. I need a new mind so I can have a new life. I just want you to raise your hand right now. And I want to pray for you that God would begin to give you new clarity in your life. Wow, all around the room. Father, I just pray that right now you would begin to create mind shifts in every one of us. That you'd begin to set us free from a lower level of thinking to the highest level of thinking. That God, you'd set us free from the bad patterns that have made us the worst version of ourselves or a lesser version of ourselves. And I pray, God, that right now you would destroy those internal limitations and begin to establish new patterns in each one of us that would set us free to live our highest expression of self. I thank you, Jesus that you have come so that we could live in abundance, that we could live a life of beauty and truth and goodness. We thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we just thank God for all those who just responded to him? So good. Beautiful. Hey, guys. I wasn't going to do this. We're, we're going to have baptisms. Are they outside? In the back. So just listen, just for a moment. We have how many people being baptized today? We have five people being baptized today, which is exciting. Now, here, here are the qualifications of being baptized. You have to give your life to Jesus. That's it. And it's like a wedding ring. It's not the marriage. It's just a symbol. It's not something you earn. When you get married, you didn't become the perfect husband. She marries an imperfect husband, hoping for the better. When you're baptized, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have your life together. You only need one thing, where you've sincerely invited Jesus into your life and said, Jesus, I belong to you. And then baptism becomes your privilege, not your obligation, your privilege. So if you just invited Jesus into your life and you'd like to be baptized this morning, we were really preparing for that. But if that's you, I just want you to stand right now. If you're saying, hey, I just, I gave my life to Jesus, I want to be baptized, just stand up right now. Just stand up right now. And then go which way? 
All right, and then go that way. All right, and go back out those doors, okay? Anyone else right now? Just go out those doors. Yeah, go that way. Go right now. They'll help you. They'll meet you. Anyone else right now? Come on. If you've given your life to Jesus and you want to be baptized today, just go right now. Just go out the back right now. We'll give you enough time to change. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to confess that you've given your life to Jesus today. Anyone else? Anyone else right now? All right. Now you can know it's you if you're hoping this ends really fast. If your heart is pounding and you're like, oh, I know it needs to be me. Next time, next time. Next time is the code word for life of regret. And sometimes one action of courageous obedience creates a domino for a future of courageous obedience. So if you happen to be here, but you're gripped by fear, remember, they were sent home. And you're going, God, I'm not getting sent home. If you invited Jesus in your life and you're just feeling fear, but you know you're supposed to get baptized today, I'm gonna make it harder on you. If that's you, I just want you to stand up and be baptized and make that choice. Is there one person in this room who knows? All right, come on, let's go. Beautiful, come on. Beautiful, come on, come on. Break the hold of fear in your life. Break the internal limitations. You choose, it sets you free. You choose, it sets you free. The power is in the choice. The power is in the choice. All right, Pastor Joe, coming up. Love you guys. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Mosaic Podcast. As God has spoken into your life, one of the things that Jesus teaches us is that when we've been invested in, we need to also become investors. And I want to encourage you right now, if Mosaic is one of the platforms from which you grow spiritually, you connect more deeply to God, and your faith with Jesus becomes more real, I want to encourage you right now to go to mosaic.org and become one of our givers. Give a one-time gift, become a recurring giver, become a part of what God's doing across the world. Mosaic isn't just a church in Los Angeles. Mosaic is all of us working together.